Welcome to the Berlin Security Beat, brought to you by the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. My name is David Bukowski, and I'll be your host for the second season of our podcast on all things international security. In this season, we will be interviewing seasoned professionals with hands-on security experience, trying to understand how we go from theory to practice, and how young professionals coming up in this field can better navigate it. We will interview a wide variety of guests, from think tankers to nuclear analysts to former intelligence officers and human rights professionals. For the opening episode of our second season, we have a very special guest. It is my pleasure to welcome Constance Schultzmüller, director of the Center for the United States and Europe and Fritz Stern Chair at Brookings. Constance, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. And that title is a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> um, Dr. Stelzenmuller, you have a, a, a very interesting and long career in foreign policy and the think tank world. Could you perhaps speak a little bit about the beginnings of your career, how it all started? Um, how did it all start? Well, you know, I hate, I, I, the, the one thing I don't want to do is make it sound as though I had planned this all from mm. A to Z, right? This is mm. not how it went. Um, in fact, at sort of several points during my career, and in fact, my studies, I had people from my family to assistants at university and friends saying, are you crazy? How can you do this? You will fail. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it was happenstance. Some of it was pure luck. Some of it was me, you know, absolutely underestimating the risk of what I was entering upon. But basically, here's the deal. I was born into a foreign service family. My dad was in the foreign service. And so I grew up with moving around to different countries. I also grew up bilingual, lucky for me. And I went to law school because I was underage and because I couldn't think of anything better to do and I didn't want to do history like my dad and oriental studies like my mother. So I went to law school because I had no better idea. Um, and my parents had always said, you know, you do what is best for you. And by the time I finished law school, it became clear that what was best for me was going to be also become a diplomat, which I absolutely didn't want to do. So I said I would like to become a journalist. Um, and my parents were horrified. Other people were horrified. And I was terrified that I would fail. Absolutely. And I went and did a um, a um, journalism stage, a volontariat, as they say in Germany, um, at Tagesspiegel in Berlin in the early 90s, when the suture between East and West Berlin was still raw and bleeding, um, and with a doctorate in law and a master from Harvard. And you know what? I loved it. I really loved it. I, I, I realized as soon as I was doing this that I was doing what was right for me. My parents were still horrified. Um, and to be honest, um, I had actually already spent a, an internship, a summer internship at the Concord Monitor between my two years at Harvard, Concord Monitor in New Hampshire, circulation 33,000, but during the summer before a presidential election, which is when all the can candidates run around there. And basically that's when I got hooked. And that is what I then did for a year and a half at Tagesspiegel in Berlin and 11 years at Die Zeit. I find it interesting that you emphasize that your career seems more coherent looking backwards than it did then. I wanted to talk more about your time at Die Zeit. Could you tell us more about how you moved from a more general journalistic career to one focused on security and foreign policy? Well, I always knew that I wanted to do foreign security policy. 
even at Tagesspiegel, I'm pretty sure I was the only journalism intern who went to Somalia in 93 with the Bundeswehr because I essentially inveigled myself uh, onto a list of the defense ministries. But I would always recommend to anybody who wants to go into journalism to do a stint doing general journalism at a daily or if you are more inclined to TV or to radio to do, you know, to be the sort of person for all topics. That is incredibly good training because it forces you, it, it teaches you how to turn on a dime, uh, to recognize a story, run after it, get it, write it down or tape it, record it. And, and and do it. And that, that is good training for foreign and security policy, certainly. And honestly, I'm grateful for all the non-foreign and security policy things that I did, such as editing the Vermischte Seite, which is the last page of, of the paper at Tagesspiegel, or was at the time, and where basically you were editing um, agency reports about tanker disasters, um, you know, stories about... Uh, I don't know, Prince Charles then still, and that kind of thing. And it is very good training for recognizing the importance of topics. For example, I, I couldn't have had more contempt for tanker disasters. But then it was made very clear to me that, that people were really, really interested in that and in fact wanted to read about that first before they read about the daily news. So I never, I never felt contempt for tanker disasters again. At its height, I joined the day after the beginning of the Rwanda genocide and our Africa editor was on holiday I became somewhat obsessed with this story because it seemed to me to be a very big one. And a lot of my older colleagues, my elders and betters, were saying that I was very new and very young and couldn't be the judge of that. And that we could wait with this until the Africa editor came back from holiday, which was going to be in three weeks. And I kept bringing this up in meetings and saying, I think this is a genocide and I think this is a massive event. And why aren't we writing about this? That was So I started April 7. Um, in the third week of May, and you can see I can re remember this as there were yesterday, CNN came to Kigali as the first TV news outlet and started broadcasting from Kigali in the middle of the genocide. And then everybody saw that and realized that, yes, it was a genocide and it was horrific. And there was going to be a huge international debate about this. And after that, that became my story. And so I literally, as a very young journalist, um, got thrown in at the deep end, covering genocide in the uh, in Central Africa, the Balkans, uh, to a lesser degree, and and then above all, because of my legal training, war crimes tribunals, and the negotiations for the International Criminal Court. And that's also the reason, because I spent so much time in crisis zones around soldiers and around the military, um, that I became defense and security editor after about five years. Um, it was a very organic transition and something I wanted to do. Wow, that's an interesting and intense initial career trajectory. What was it like working in a conflict zone? Well, um, I was not allowed by my paper to travel to Rwanda during the genocide. Uh, we had a policy of not sending people directly into war zones. What I did do was uh, go to Tanzania, where after there had been a massive migration movement, 250,000 people uh, in 24 hours uh, traversed the border from Rwanda to Tanzania. And that refugee camp became, by that migration, the second biggest city in Tanzania. I went and visited that and wrote about it and sort of kept on building myself a network of sources. And then went to Kigali for the first time immediately after the end of the genocide, um, when the uh, Tutsi rebels won the civil war that happened at the same time. And 
this and by the definition of my paper was now no longer a war zone, it was a post-war zone. Um, I think the conception of the difference between war and post-war that my elders and betters had was pretty sketchy. I think it was enough to thoroughly traumatize me. But I didn't really realize that until, you know, quite a while later that this had sort of left some deep emotional scars. That said, you know, at the time I felt that it was my responsibility to gather the story and that I didn't have any business letting my feelings interfere with that. I w it was actually much more troubling for me when I came home and the following happened. I um, was asked at the editorial table what my story was going to be. And I said, well, here is what happened. The victims of the genocide have just won a civil war against the perpetrators of the genocide. They have chased the perpetrators from the country, mostly. Many of them are now grouped in a huge refugee camp on the other side of the Rwandan border in Zaire, now Congo. And they are telling us if we, the West, don't assure, give them security assurances, they will take care of what they see as an existential threat to themselves by essentially marching into Congo and killing their former attackers. Also, there, I was told on very good authority by a UN general um, that there are now revenge killings going on in Kigali itself. Um, it's one of these complicated situations where you have sort of very clear perpetrator and victim situation, but the victims are now sort of have plans of their own that we were going to have trouble dealing with as the West. And there was a hushed silence at the, at the editorial table. And then one of my colleagues said, Constanza, we're very disappointed in you. And I said, why is that? It really it caught my breath because I was still in my probationary period. And she said, Constanza, you told us a story about politics. We want to hear a story about victims. And then I took a deep breath, again, thinking of my probation period, and said, look, um, as far as I'm concerned, that's a racist framing. I don't think I used the word framing that became fashionable much later. But I said, look, this conflict has a history. It has economic interests attached to it. It has political interests attached to it. And there are some very complicated and for us embarrassing and unpleasant Western enabling uh, situations here. And to see this through a purely German frame of if it's a genocide, we have to be on the side of the, of the victims no matter what is, is limiting and I believe does not do the complexity of the, the situation justice. We can say that this was a genocide which killed nearly a million people. Uh, with horrific suffering, human suffering, and say at the same time there was a civil war, and that civil war, in a way, is still ongoing. So it was in in most in in, I mean, let me put it this way: the two lessons from this from this episode for me were one, we often fail or refuse to see the complexities and the the full dimension of stories that happen outside of the West. Secondly. The, I realized then, and we are talking here about the mid-90s, that the German take on such events was considerably, considerably more introspective, focused on Germany's own post-war experience, and therefore more rigid and tightly framed than that which you could read in, say, the Belgian, French, English, or American media. That, to me, was a revelation. And what that in, in a variety of permutations I was to encounter again and again. Wow, that's really fascinating. And you eventually left journalism. So I left, um, I left journalism in 2005. 
um, and was on an embed list for Iraq of the American embassies, um, and but then sort of never got there and was frankly quite relieved. I really loved Afghanistan. Um, I had liked, despite the traumatic circumstances, going to Africa and the, and the Balkans, but um, after a 11 years, it was kind of uh, Iraq. I, th- I thought what well, might be might just be too much. I, I also understand that. I want to talk a little bit about this uh, transition you made from journalism mm-hmm. to the think tank field. Uh, you moved from this position as, as editor at Die Zeit mm-hmm. to the German Marshall Fund in mm-hmm. Berlin. So I was I was curious about Why? how that transition was like. <laughs> Why? <laughs> what were the reasons and um, and what were the challenges that you that you faced during that transition? So it's really very simple. Um, I was recruited. I don't think it would have occurred to me to apply there. In fact, I didn't really know what the Marshall Fund was doing. Um, and I really loved journalism. Um, it was an utterly congenial way for me to learn about the world and to understand it by writing about it. And I thought that the stories I covered, you know, struck me as deeply important. And I also also felt an obligation towards the people that I talked to and whose lives I often asked them to explain to me. I felt a deep obligation to get that right and to tell those stories to the rest of the world. A woman from the Marshall Fund who was to become my predecessor, she was then the head of the Berlin office, called me and called me, whom I knew superficially, called me at work on a, on a Tuesday, which is when, Tuesday afternoon, which is when uh, Die Zeit gets put to bed, as we say, and when the the political section uh, of which I was a member was working full throttle. Um, and she said, we're looking for a new director. Um, would you, and we thought of you, we'd really be interested in you applying. Would you like to talk to us? And I said, you know, no, I, you know, I'm really busy right now and I'm having far too much fun as a journalist. So thank you very much. It's an honor, but no, thank you. And I put down the um, the receiver um, and went on doing my work. And then later that night, I told two colleagues of this offer and both of them laughed. One of them was uh, considerably senior to me. The other one was my direct superior. And I went home thinking, Jesus Christ, I have just, it has just been cleared to me that I have reached the concrete ceiling. It has just been made clear to me that my colleagues and superiors do not think that I have any other options out of working at this newspaper. And then I sort of thought back and thought, yes, and actually the things that I want to do, which is to write about sort of strategic issues, um, diplomatic issues, is something that they don't want let me do. They're sort of pushing me towards purely military analysis, which is not going to appear in the paper more than once a month. That's nothing... You know, that's I'm, I'm, that's nothing I'm up for. And I thought, my second thought was, oh, my God, and I've just rejected a job offer. Who knows whether I'll ever get one again. And then they called me again 10 days later. And I said, yes, I'm willing to talk. And when it became clear to me that this American think tank was doing stuff that I, was actually very interesting and that they were willing to offer me a position of responsibility for people, for programming, and for a budget, 
at the age of 42 without ever having proven to anybody that I was capable of doing any of those things, I thought, you know, sowas machen nur Amis. Only Americans would think you could you could learn all this while flying the plane. And that's not something a German employer will ever do to you. And my, and your current employer really thinks, you know, you've reached, the, you're at the peak of your career, of what's possible for you there. And then I said, I'm willing to talk. And I left. And the other thing was, if, I'm, if I may say something very personal, I, I ended up being, between my second and my third conversation with them, I ended up being recruited with thyroid cancer. It was malignant, but of the kind that when you operate, uh, you're usually in the clear. There is a there was a residual possibility of of recidivism, in which case my life would be foreshortened. But that, as far as I was concerned, was an additional reason to leave and do something new. You know, I thought if if there is that possibility, at, the, at least I want to be able to look back and say I tried something new rather than stay in the place. And it also became clear that my colleagues thought that with this diagnosis, that was you know going to be the end of my ever wanting to do anything else. And I came out of hospital after that operation and handed in my resignation letter and said, I'm going to Berlin and I'm doing this. Thank you very much. It's been great. Wow. Thank you for the 11 years. What was your uh, colleague's reaction when you, when you I resigned? Uh, I think they were surprised. Wow. Amazing. That's an amazing story. Well, you know, I don't want to make it sound too heroic. I wasn't particularly good at what I did. I did it for four years. And then I was basically demoted to a senior uh, to a senior um, fellow and ended up running the transatlantic uh, trends survey, which was interesting, but also a project that at that time had some sort of some design flaws that would have um, required a massive infusion of cash to get right. And while we tried and tried to rectify that, we didn't we couldn't get it done. Um, and I ended up being um, recruited by Brookings and, and decided to go. But I did stay at GMF for 10 years, and I owe GMF um, a, a number of really important things. And, and one is, I, I do think that GMF is a fabulous organization. It was funded once um, with a German grant by Willy Brandt uh, from Marshall Plan money that the German government had saved. And it... Um, It was created in 1972 to build bridges between America and Europe. But the management then, the then director, um, turned it into something much more energetic and, and dynamic um, with six offices in Europe, including in Eastern Europe. And it was essentially for me a way to learn more and, uh, and you know, gain a much deeper understanding of the dynamics between the old Western Europe and the new Eastern Europe um, and Europe and America than I had previously ever had. And, and that is, and GMF does programming work, um, does, uh, young professional, um, stipends, the, the so-called Marshall Memorial program and all of those things I think are immensely valuable. And, and so I, I, I wasn't a particularly good Berlin office director, but I learned a huge amount. Hmm. As people who work in, in public policy or in, in the think tank world, I think we're often sort of implicitly presented with this with the sort of dichotomy between uh, more administrative positions mm -hmm. and more content-related positions. Right. And I was wondering how you see this and if in your experience they are more excluding each other. Like, would you have, Do you, young professionals really have to choose or is it possible 
as perhaps you did to move more between administrative or content mm-hmm. positions? Well, I mean, you could say arguably I'm back in that. I'm I'm back in a, in a position as as director of the center on the US and Europe. I think that it is a important. I mean, that's a platitude, but I'll say it anyway. It's important to keep learning, and that sometimes it's good for you to push yourself to do things that you don't have a predisposition for, haven't been taught, or are not particularly apt at. Managing people, managing programs and managing a budget is something, you know, that's useful experience for anybody, right? And one shouldn't sneer at it. I mean, there are there are people who are, I think, just constitutionally incapable of doing that kind of thing. And I will say that one of the one of the amusing insights that I've had at the two newspapers that I've worked in is that journalists tend to have complete contempt for the management side of the business. And that is all the more entertaining because very often very good journalists uh, get promoted to management positions. And the paper is very lucky if that they then turn out to be good managers. Not so lucky if they don't. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen both kinds. But the I always thought that it was important to see that side. And in fact, I think I'm still historically the only journalism intern at Tagesspiegel who asked to volunteer with the Geschäftsführung, with the management side. I asked, requested to spend three months on that side. And uh, the volunteers Ausbilder and the and the managing director were, were just astounded at this request. And then I said, you know, um, you may find this Marxist, but I would like to know the eco- economic preconditions of my freedom of opinion. I would like to know what it's like to be on the business side of this. I would find that useful. And frankly, those were probably the three most useful months of my entire internship. I had not all the in- insights I gained were reassuring. Um, newspapers uh, in the 90s tended to be sort of medium sized enterprises that found it extremely hard to make a profit and then ended up being swallowed by conglomerates. But yeah, that's the reasons for that was that that was something that I learned during the during that time. So I think, you know, I, I think one shouldn't sneer at, at the management and administrative side administrative side of things. Um and it's useful to learn. And I will also say that I'm now in a place at Brookings where um I'm actually really learning in a very positive way, relearning um, the management side of my current job. And I am deeply impressed by how thoroughly and decently that's that's done. Um, it's. I wish I had gotten that education a little earlier in my career, but what I'm ner- learning now is is really very impressive. That's uh, that's very that's very interesting and also uh, good advice for young people to pay a little bit of attention to the management side Absolutely. and the economic side behind right. the machine. Uh, that it, it leads me to another um, follow-up question on your experience between uh, German and American working culture mm-hmm. and maybe just um, policy culture in general. I'm curious if you can sort of summarize your experience uh, briefly, what, what you felt was the biggest difference. I mean, you already mentioned that the Americans would sort of are much more open to maybe... Um, experimenting. Experimenting, yes. <laughs> with people and I, with things, absolutely. Yes. Well, let me, maybe, if I may, I would go back a little farther and go to go to the university difference. Um, I went to law school in Bonn, and 
once I had arrived at Harvard for my my master's degree, I remember sitting at some evening event next to a Jewish classmate who was from Scotland um, and who'd done economics at Cambridge and, and the British Cambridge. And we described our study, studies to each other as, as one does. And when I described my law school education, he said, Constance, it sounds rather like my yeshiva in Edinburgh. Which I thought was hilarious, and then I then I realized it was quite true. It was sort of very you know sort of rigid and very focused on memorization and on reciting cases and that kind of thing. And what I found incredibly refreshing about the American method um, was the general openness, the willingness to uh, engage in self-criticism and methodical critique and the willingness to acknowledge um, political bias or framing in one's own analysis of the law or of economics. I thought that my legal education in Germany had been rigid, uh, hermetic, um, unwilling to acknowledge the neighboring um, schools or sciences, and and frankly very parochial in its in its unwillingness to acknowledge other international schools. And so the the academic experience in Harvard was, was really a breath of fresh air. I also thought we were treated much more like adults by professors. And, and I appreciated that all the more because it was clear that although your professor would address you by your first name, that really meant that the standards weren't up, not down. Um, and in the work environment, yeah, I mean, it was frankly quite similar. When I arrived at these the, my, my, my two German newspaper shop jobs, I felt that there was a degree of rigidity um, and of sort of vertical power axes um, where the fact that you were young and had come from outside was somehow grounds for suspicion. I thought that hierarchies in American institutions struck me as much more flat um, and much, again, much more open to experimentation, discussion, and so on. Um, now, obviously, uh, Americans, American work cultures can hide hierarchies yeah, and they can hide power structures, but, um, and that's something you have to figure out over time. But the general openness is something that I've, I really appreciated. Right. So hierarchies can appear in a variety of different ways. I'd like to ask about the kind of advice you'd give to upcoming professionals now. And I'd start by asking you what kind of advice you'd give to your 20-year-old self, if you could. God, this is so hard. I mean, at 20, I was sort of, you know, 20 going on 12 in some ways. Um I think it would be really to take a deep breath and to calm down, <laughs> if I'm completely honest, because it will all be fine. Um, I think the larger advice that I would give, not just myself, but other people, which is that it's okay to fail, and I failed a number of times, if you learn something from it, if you sort of get up, dust yourself off, consider the mistakes you made and try to rectify them. Right, and I think that's that's something that I've learned over time, and that I've told sort of younger friends. And I often think that people who have slightly bent work biographies, yeah, uh, with I don't know career dips, 
that kind of thing, that they've then figured out how to overcome, often strike me as the more well-rounded, more emotionally stable, more interesting and more empathetic colleagues than those who have straight as an arrow career trajectories <coughs> and who've never failed. Um, so I often think that people who have sort of kinks in their career biography, dips, failures, and who have learned from them, or who have decided that what they're doing has come to a sort of dead end and that they need to do something new and start over or teach themselves something new, end up being the more well-rounded, um, intellectually open and empathetic colleagues than those who have straight as an arrow career paths where they have never ever been forced to doubt themselves, their own judgment, their own trajectory, or to re-examine their, their path. Hmm. That's, that's, I think that's really, really great advice. I think in humility and openness to learning is, is an essential really um, aspect of, 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 I think the kind of career development we really seek, which yeah. is more comprehensive than just. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the thing that I would, the one advice that I would give is it is, it is absolutely okay to change careers from time to time. Yeah. It is take some courage to pursue something that important people around you, including your parents or your friends, are saying is crazy. And I think it is worth thinking hard about why they think so. And then if you think you have a good argument or that you're willing to take the risk of failure upon yourself, then you can go ahead, which is what I did basically several times. But I think at the very least, you need to pay respect to the doubts of those who are saying, are you sure you're doing the right thing for yourself? Is there a piece of everyday advice that you'd have for our listeners or for people coming up in this field, something that you practice every day that you think would be, would be helpful? It's a good question. I think what I've learned over time is to be less hard on myself and to pace myself. I did say earlier that I think I was thoroughly traumatized in Rwanda, um, and I and I actually did go and do therapy. I did once in my journalism career, in fact, just before Kosovo, or actually during Kosovo, um, breakdown. Um, and I think that was, among other things, a late result of of the trauma I had undergone that I hadn't sufficiently sufficiently acknowledged. And so the two things I did was to do a fair amount of therapy. Um, which I would rec recommend to anyone. It's really like sending your car to the TÜV. Um, it's it's good for, for your mental health. And the other thing that I did was that I started writing about trauma, about traumatized soldiers, among other things. And that was the thing that made me realize that this had happened to me too. And that in some ways, it was also what I had seen in the generation of my parents and in my parents who were war children. And that enabled me to contextualize um, and to find a larger societal and political historical meaning in this experience. But it also helped me to make something out of my own therapy. And there was a point then when I thought, okay, I've, I've, done, I've done what I needed to understand this and to work through it. And I've never really had that need again. 
So my my advice, and I mean this is now really very personal, but but I I suspect it may be useful to some, is if you're really feeling bad about something for whatever reason, you know, go get help, because um, help works. And I will say also, it is very hard for me to watch and listen to what is happening in Ukraine these days. Um, it is, to use the fashionable term, incredibly triggering. It makes me angry. It makes me sad. And it makes it quite hard to take a step back. I mean, that is, let me be more, more precise. It makes it hard. It is, it, I have learned over time how to take a step back. It's one of the things you learn in therapy. But this is, I think, the single worst thing that has happened to German foreign policy and to Europe since the Kosovo, since the Yugoslav Wars. And I think that, I have to put it very bluntly, this is the single most dramatic, all-encompassing, consequential crisis of Europe's and Germany's foreign and security policy to happen so far in my lifetime. And I know that I'm going to need to keep it together, to, 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 that I'm going to need my energy, my analytical capacity, my writing power, um, to, to do this justice. And I am grateful for the training that I got in the past 30 years, um, thinking about, writing about, covering a variety of crises, because I feel that they have, in some ways, prepared me for this. And so, again, in all humility, I'm grateful, because I think otherwise I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be capable of doing it. I have immense respect for the degree, the extent of the challenge that we are facing as a society, as a political community um, in Germany, in Europe, in the transatlantic alliance, in the West, and, and, and globally, frankly, because this is, while it's a regional war, it's, it already has visible global implications. And my expectation is that I will be working on some aspect of this for the remainder of my professional lifetime. One final bit of advice to people who are starting out in their careers is to not be afraid of what may seem to them like a disjointed set of experiences and to embrace that and to see where it goes. Very often in retrospect, things look uh, astoundingly coherent <laughs> that you per know perfectly well have not been coherent in any relevant way. And on that reassuring note, we will end here. Thank you, Constance Stelzenmüller. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today for the opening episode of our second season. Please follow the Center for International Security for updates on our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, wherever you get your social media. If you're interested in security policy, you may also check out the Hurdy School's Master of International Affairs. We have a great international security track. Join us for our next episode in March as we interview one of the greats of nuclear policy. Until next time from Berlin. Berlin.